0: In its statement, Botswana says it will not associate itself with those calling for countries to withdraw from the Rome Statute, which establishes the ICC. The country says withdrawing from the ICC betrays the rights of victims of atrocities and progress made to fight impunity. It has urged South Africa to ventilate its concerns with the implementation of the Rome Statute at a meeting at The Hague next month. International Relations Minister Maitengwana Mashabane has, however, asserted South Africa's right to make sovereign decisions.
1: It is not in our business to wake up and start calling our our neighbors' names. We we, we respect uh, sovereignty of states. There are states uh, in our neighborhood that still practice uh, death sentence. We do not uh, wake up and say they are lesser neighbors because they do that. We engage with them as and when we get the opportunity to do so. We do not engage with them, talking about our neighbours, through statements.
0: South Africa's decision follows that of Burundi earlier in the month, and Gambia this week has also given notice to withdraw from the statute, accusing it of being biased against continental leaders. Botswana's intervention comes ahead of the scheduled election of a new African Union chairperson in January when Kosa Zanatlamini Zuma ends her term. Botswana's Foreign Affairs Minister, Peloni Vincent Moitoy, is a Southern African region's candidate to be the next African Union chief. Kwanema Shabane was tight-lipped as to whether South Africa will continue to support Vincent Moitoy's bid.
1: South Africa is a disciplined member of SADC, and it will be the SADC family that has to take such decisions. All I can say is that we respect SADC as our family and we will take no individual decisions. We will not be reactive. We will remain disciplined. We will wait for conducive platforms to raise issues as we normally do uh, in this part of the world.
0: Kwanama Shabane says South Africa's decision to withdraw from the ICC was not done on a whim, merely because of the Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir case. She says the continued imbalances of the Rome Statute and its unwillingness to remedy them left the country little choice.
1: There were allegations of some atrocities committed by the U.S. soldiers in Afghanistan, but we have seen no intention whatsoever by the ICC to pursue those cases. We know of cases that have been lodged recently by the Palestinians, the newest member, against Israel. No movement. We are also aware of cases lodged by Iraqis against British soldiers during the then-Iraq war. No intention whatsoever. So this is what gives the Africans this feeling that there is no movement forward.
2: That report by Busi Chimombe. Nearly 400,000 children in northeastern Nigeria are facing starvation and without means to respond. Aid agencies fear that many of them will die. Boko Haram's years-long insurgency in the region has claimed thousands of lives, but survivors must now contend with hunger, a crisis plaguing the war-torn region. For more on the situation in Borno and two neighbouring states, here's Dune Porter, Chief of Communications at the United Nations Children's Fund in Nigeria.
3: The situation in northeast Nigeria as a result of the Boko Haram conflict is really critical. It was an area, even before the conflict began, that was very poor with a lack of facilities and already a high burden of severe acute malnutrition. The Boko Haram crisis has made everything so much worse. There's now a severe food shortage, especially in the three states in northeast Nigeria that are most affected. Farmers have not been able to plant crops. Food stocks have been destroyed or looted or just simply used up in many cases. And the market, normal system of markets are not functioning in many parts of of the Northeast. So we find now we've estimated that in the three Northeast Nigerian states most affected, that we estimate uh, 400,000 children this year will suffer from severe acute malnutrition. Mm -hmm. It's an extremely dangerous condition for children. It makes children nine times more likely to die from an ordinary illness such as malaria or pneumonia or diarrhea.
4: And in terms of accessing the affected areas, are humanitarian agencies managing? Just how difficult is it?
3: Well, it's extremely difficult for two reasons. One reason is that it's especially in Borno State, that's where the problem is most of these large areas of Borno State remain completely inaccessible. It's just too dangerous to travel in these areas. There are attacks on military convoys that go out and so for humanitarian assistance, it's just not safe. In fact, one of our convoys into one of the areas that had, we thought was safe, was attacked earlier this year. So one of the problems is inaccessibility because of insecurity. The other problem is that the entire humanitarian assistance effort is dramatically and critically underfunded. UNICEF, working with our partners on the ground, we have been able to reach with treatment more than 100,000 of these uh, children that need treatment for severe acute malnutrition, but we're very short of our targets. And the lack of funding is really a huge problem for UNICEF and for all the humanitarian actors on the ground. We really urgently need to scale up our response and we're hitting this wall because the world just is not aware of the problem. And donors are not stepping up to help the children in northeast Nigeria, unfortunately.
4: Speaking of awareness, there are concerns that the situation in northeastern Nigeria is not receiving the attention it deserves. Elaborate on this lack of awareness to the magnitude of the problem.
3: There's a lot of things going on in the world at the moment. There's a a lot of news stories that are competing for attention. And Nigeria has just fallen between the cracks in the international media, but the problem here is huge. We have more than 4 million people living in and crisis food security levels and even that has tipped over in some parts of Borno state so that about 65,000 people are actually living in famine conditions so it's incredible that the world goes on without people being aware of this massive crisis. Dune, what are some of the stories are people telling you
4: especially mothers who have to watch their children suffer?
3: The stories universally are tragic, you know. Even the people who have been the least affected have fled their homes, the stories of Violence are are just appalling, especially for children. We're hearing a lot, a lot of stories from women and girls who've been held by Boko Haram, who've been subjected to sexual violence, repeated rapes, who've been forced to marry. We're hearing about um, children who've been sent off and forced into exploding bombs as so-called suicide bombers. The stories that we hear are dreadful, tragic, and traumatic. Finally, the return of
4: polio in Nigeria when the country was seemingly on the right track to end the epidemic has been a concern. Elaborate more on that.
3: It is indeed in Borno State where we have discovered and confirmed these four cases of polio. In July, Nigeria celebrated two years without having a single case of polio reported. And that was indeed a huge celebration. We were well on the way to the three-year mark without a case where we would have been declared polio-free. But the conflict obviously has meant that a lot of children have not been accessible, you know, and we can't reach them with any humanitarian assistance. Obviously, we haven't been able to reach them with immunization. And this outbreak uh, really underlines the link between conflict and disease, especially polio. And the the need for immunization, there's a clear link to the lack of access to these children for immunization and the, the outbreak.
2: That was Dune Porter, Chief of Communications at the United Nations Children's Fund in Nigeria, on the line from Abuja, speaking to Jane Rabotata. It's 8.15 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Now, South Africa's National Director of Public Prosecution, Sean Abrams, has given the assurance that he'll make a decision soon on whether he'll drop charges against Finance Minister Pravin Gordon. This as speculation intensifies that Abrams will drop the charges today. Last week, more than 100 African National Congress Star joined in the chorus of support for Gordon, saying the NPA has no case. Deputy President Sil Ramaphosa is among the leaders within the party that have pledged their support to the finance minister. Now, to speak to us more on this, we're now joined on the line by South African political analyst Theo Fenter. Theo, good morning and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. What do you make of all the political support Gordon is getting, especially from within the ANC?
5: Yeah, I think... um Today we will have a press conference and everybody is looking at that press conference with huge interest because it is not only an announcement whether the National Prosecuting Agency is going to continue with the case, it is also about the survivability of Mr. Sean Abrams as our head of national prosecutions because this case has been in in kind of a... Uh, a problem area right from the beginning because um, when the case, uh, when we started looking at the case and the merits of the case, it seemed as if it's neither here nor there. Um, it, is, it, it looked at um, in the beginning more like an administrative problem than a criminal problem. So the question immediately arose was this a political kind of headhunt or a witch hunt? what's going on and I think that is the problem that we will be watching today about where the NPA is going with this case.
2: Now why would you say that this case has divided the
4: ANC?
5: Now I don't think the case divided the ANC. The case was a very significant indication of the existing divides within the ANC. we, we know about factionalism and we know about pro-Zuma support and anti-Zuma support and all these kind of things. It's very difficult, really, to say who is in which corner and whether there are only two corners or maybe three. But um, when this case emerged, it was clear that um, people are looking at ways, almost indirect ways of doing things. You see, uh, in, in a normal situation, If a president is not happy with somebody in his cabinet, he he will change the cabinet and he will drop the guy and he will take in somebody new. But it seems to me this case around the Minister of Finance is so complicated that it looked as if the president was looking at an alternative method, that of prosecuting somebody, hoping for something to emerge, and in that case... Uh, he would not have needed to, to, to um, leave him out of cabinet, that he must almost, almost be forced to resign, because in terms of rules, once you go to court and you're a cabinet minister, it's accepted that you will then have to relieve your post. Now, that is not going to happen in this case, it seems to me. So um, people are having egg on their face that this strategy of getting rid of kravin Gordon Gordán didn't work. And uh, I think it will just intensify the existing uh, factions in the ANC, especially if you, uh, like you've mentioned in your question, strong people within the ANC, with, with voices that has been associated with the party. I mean the the, the, the support from uh, Jackson and Tembu and, and uh, Cyril Ramaphosa are strong voices in the ANC.
2: Now... Could we see this or could we read um, the fact that this may be the beginning of a challenging period for President Jacob Zuma, who is seen to be the one pulling the strings behind closed doors?
5: Yeah, if we look at it in a realistic term, uh, President Zuma has 30 paychecks left before he must leave formally. Uh, the end of his second term, um, right around than May 2019, uh, any president, whether it's the current president of Korea that we just heard about, or whether it's Obama leaving in two or three months, at the end of your term, you reach a point where we refer to anybody as a lame duck. In other words, he is still president. He is still firmly in control. But everybody is looking beyond his president. What's coming after Zuma? And the ANC has got two challenges. The one is not only the end of Zuma's term in May 2019, but they also have a leadership re-election in December 2017. And that, I think, is currently what determines the chemistry in the ANC not necessarily prevent it's not necessarily the good it's not necessarily all of these things that we hear about it is about a leadership challenge in the ANC about who takes over the reins of power within the ANC within a year
2: now Theo you mentioned earlier a lot of people are going to have uh, if uh, Sean and Abrams drops the charges egg on their faces and uh, so on so forth What does this mean for Sean Abrams as the director of the public prosecutions?
5: I think it's got a huge impact. My personal view is that the NPA is as important to our constitutional democracy as the Constitution. You see, the NPA's role is that of making sure that Um, We play according to certain rules, especially on the state side, and his role is to stay at arm's length from the politicians so that he can do his work without fear or favor or any favoritism or whatever. The first mistake he made in in several was to go to the Tudor House to have a meeting. Now it doesn't matter what they discussed it doesn't matter whether Zuma or whether Pravin Gordhan or anybody was on the agenda somebody like um the NPA should never go to a party political headquarters for no reason um that was a mistake and the, seven, the second problem is two of the people that he reappointed in very senior positions uh Mrs uh, Jiba and Mr Gravy Uh, were recently found to be not fit and proper to hold um, the position of advocates. Therefore, their position at the NPA has been very, very weakened. And they were strong people in his whole design. I think we have reached the point where a rethink about how the NPA operates and the leadership operates has now emerged and uh, the, the problem and the mistake that we've made. And that mistake is not a new mistake. In my view, that mistake was made by Mr. Luka 10, 12 years ago when he said, I'm going to take Mr. Shabir to court, but on prima facie evidence, I'm not going to take Zuma to court. That's where the problem started. So it's not a new problem. It's a problem that from then on, the NPA was in political problems ever since.
2: Now, should the charges be dropped um, against uh, Finance Minister Pravin Gordon, economically, this may be a positive move for um, South Africa's economy with regards to ratings agencies and uh, um, the political uh, uh, um, credibility of the country. What's your take on this?
5: Well, the markets are very interesting in how they deal with these things. I think they're already priced uh, into their thinking about where we're going. In other words, their kind of risk analysis of South Africa, they're already priced in. that Pavin Gordon would probably not be prosecuted. So I don't think they will react on that by, let's say, the RAND strengthening or something like that. Um, But I think it would send a very positive signal that Uh, The rules of the game, that is the rule of law, is still intact. And secondly, that we have at the moment a very effective and efficient minister of finance, which is crucial for a country where the economic growth hovers around 0%, I think it's 0.5%, 0.4%. You need a good manager on national finance when you're in that precarious position. And I think that would be the positive message.
2: Theo, we look forward to the, um, well, the press conference uh, by the National uh, Director of Public Prosecution, Sean Abrams, and uh, I'm sure we'll be chatting about that later in the week. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. And uh, that was uh, Theo Fenter, South Africa's political analyst, joining us on the line. <laughs> Tonight. it's 826 central african time and you're listening to africa rise and shine we're coming to you live from johannesburg in south africa now more than 90 migrants are believed dead after the rickety boat was damaged shortly after leaving the Libyan coast. According to spokesperson for the Libyan Navy, Ayub Hassim. a total of 126 migrants were in the boat, mostly African nationals. This year has been deemed the deadliest ever for migrants in the Mediterranean. Spokesperson for the International Organization for Migration, Itai Viriri, tells us more.
7: Sadly, it's yet another uh, testament of the migration crisis that we're, we've been seeing for the past three years, where we've been seeing uh, unprecedented numbers of people trying to cross the Mediterranean. And unfortunately, because of the um, unseaworthy vessels that they uh, put on by smugglers, we are seeing all these fatalities. So what happened in this uh, particular instance on Wednesday night was that um, there was a boat, uh, as you said, with 126 people on board. And it capsized just shortly after leaving Tripoli, and uh, only 29 migrants uh, were rescued. And we presume the rest, uh, up to 97, either dead or missing. So this is yet another tragedy uh, in a year, which unfortunately seems to be set for a record number of migrants dying in the Mediterranean.
4: Now, it's been more than a month um, since the historic UN Summit on the Refugee and Migrant Crisis. Generally speaking, how has the situation been in the international waters since that particular meeting?
7: Well, I wish I could say that after the summit, things have improved, certainly in terms of uh, the number of incidences that we're seeing. But unfortunately, that's not the case. Uh, As I said, as as I'm speaking to you now, we have recorded uh, just over three thousand nine hundred migrants who have died uh, so far this year. When you look at last year, we're talking of 3,700. So we've already gone past the full total for 2015 before the year has ended. That means that what needs to be fixed, what needs to be done to stop this uh, death happening is not working. And that really includes uh, dealing with the situation in Libya, where most of these boats are launched from, and also ensuring that people are not desperate enough to get on these boats and that the smugglers also are caught and dealt with.
4: And I Aida, with the Migration Agency, now officially a member of the UN, how will this uh, particular merger um, help in terms of addressing the global refugee and migration crisis? Any new
7: strategies? Well, well, the International Organization for Migrations joining the UN system obviously means that we are in a position to be more involved in coming up with solutions to the migration crisis. Before, obviously, we were an agency looking in from the outside What we hope is that we can work with the international community and other uh, interested parties, especially the European Union, to make sure that we do not see this number of deaths uh, again. One way of doing that is ensuring that um, we work with uh, governments in the countries of origin, make sure that people don't feel desperate enough to leave their countries. So, for example, you see a lot of money being put into places like Ethiopia to try and build manufacturing capacities where people will be employed, and then that means that young people do not seek to go to Europe. So we are involved in those kind of initiatives, but we need more of them on the ground and not just the usual developmental aid, but mm. real, tangible benefits that will keep people at home.
2: That was Itai Viriri, spokesperson for the International Organization for Migration in Geneva, Switzerland, speaking to Zikon Amiso. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. Very
0: good morning to you. In the headlines, United Nations Secretary General Ban Ki-moon has urged South Africa's President Jacob Zuma to reconsider the country's plan to withdraw from the International Criminal Court. Ivory Coast has voted in a referendum on a new constitution which President Alassane Wattara says will help the country move on after years of crisis. And the decomposed bodies of 16 migrants have washed up on shore at the western Libyan city of Zuwara. Those are the stories making headlines.
6: Africa, rise and shine. Africa, zorba. Africa, Africa, amuka na
8: ungare.
2: Thank you, Anne. It's 8.31 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now, the UN Joint Office for Human Rights has expressed concern about the increase of human rights abuses in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Most of the cases are those related to political space, freedom of association and expression of assembly. The UN office has noted government's efforts to fight against impunity but believes there is still a lot to do. Jean-Noel Bamweze reports from Kinshasa.
9: It's a significant increase that has been recorded since the UN Joint Office for Human Rights has documented 506 cases in September, while the number of human rights abuse was 393 in August. Most of human rights violations have been committed by the state's agents. The UN office attributed 66% of the 560 cases to the national police, the national army, the national intelligence agency and different other authorities of this country. Armed groups operating in the eastern DRC have also committed human rights violations but the most human rights abuser remains the national police that committed 160 meaning 32% of the cases. All this is done although this country's government is doing efforts to fight impunity according to the director of the UN Joint Office for Human Rights here Jose Maria Aranaz.
10: We have just uh, presented the report of September, which shows again an increase of the human rights abuses, especially those that refer to political space, freedom of association, expression and assembly. Of concern, it is that over 66% of the human rights abuses have been committed by state actors. We have presented also a report that shows the efforts of the government with regards to fight against impunity and bring responsible of human rights abuses to justice. What the report shows is that when there is political will and there is clear determination from the authorities the number of human rights abuses brought to justice has gone up and we've seen that particularly in the case of sexual violence however and we've seen also some progress in the case of military justice however in the cases of human rights abuses committed by the police we've seen that there is much more that needs to be done since around only nine percent of the human rights abuses committed by the police are brought to justice Such an
9: increase of human rights abuse has been reported while political atmosphere is not so good this time and especially in the coming days as the elections expected here next month have been pushed to April 2018. President Joseph Kabila's last constitutional term is supposed to end in December, but he has to remain in office until the inauguration of a newly elected president, according to a political agreement between the ruling majority and some political parties. The opposition rally led by veteran opposition leader, Etienne Tshisekedi doesn't want to hear about this and has called on a big meeting on November 5th here in Kinshasa. I then asked the UN office director, Joseph Maria Aranas, if there is no fear, this might turn to more human rights abuse again.
10: We expect that in the next weeks a uh, political agreement, uh, full inclusive, is it's, uh, it's reached, so that the political tensions are decreased and so does the number of human rights abuses. But in the meantime, we hope that full respect of the freedom of association, expression, assembly will be respected.
9: On the other side, the UN Joint Office for Human Rights has noted that the Eastern provinces are no more the only official. by human rights abuses it was before but the situation has affected as well the country's capital city kinshasa jean-noel pamoisie channel africa kinshasa
2: the chief executive officer of airline com air eric fenter says the south african department of home affairs must act now to clarify entry requirements and address delays of immigration at the Tambo International Airport. Recent weeks have seen thousands of visitors waiting for up to four hours to be processed, which has meant that hundreds have missed their connecting flights despite landing at the airport in good time to board. Eric Fenter says the delays are due to the introduction of biometric identification at immigration as well as staffing changes which have led to few, too few officials from the Department of Home Affairs operating the counters.
11: About a year and a half ago, the Department of Home Affairs implemented uh, new immigration regulations, including the requirement for families to have unabridged birth certificates for children, and also the requirement for biometric visas for foreigners coming into South Africa. And at the moment, we're seeing massive delays with people coming into the country. Um, Some people wait for up to four hours to get through immigration. And the consequence of that is that they're often missing their connecting flights domestically or into the region. So it's having real consequences for people who miss their flights. Sometimes they're even missing a night's accommodation. So they might have booked a holiday at Victoria Falls, et cetera, and they can't get away on the day because they missed a connecting flight and they can only fly out the next day, etc.
0: What sectors will be affected by these delays at the airport?
11: Anyone involved in tourism is ultimately affected. So the airlines are obviously affected, both the international airlines, the airlines flying internationally and bringing people into the country because there's less people wanting to come in here because they know about this issue. Uh, the domestic carriers are being affected because we have to try and find ways to reaccommodate passengers who didn't get through immigration in time and then you find all the people providing accommodation are affected because a lot of the accommodation then is empty for a day and they have to either refund or find other ways to reaccommodate people. Um, And then the broader tourism sector is affected.
4: What do you think can be done to fix the situation?
11: I don't think we need to reinvent the wheel here. You know, a lot of countries around the world are making huge effort to enhance tourism to their countries. And it really has become a massive profit generator in many countries around the world. So one only has to look at some of these countries like New Zealand, like Japan, like Canada, etc., and what they've done to enhance the experience of people coming into their countries. The very first simple solution is simply to ensure that there are enough people at the immigration desks to actually increase the flow of people through the immigration desks.
4: Why do you think there's not enough manpower at the immigration desk?
11: At the moment, Department of Home Affairs says that they've got a budget constraint and they can't employ people to man the desks. So, you know, that's a very easy first solution. That would double the rate of people coming through the immigration desks. But then we also need to look very seriously at some of the equipment that's being used, you know, the biometric scanners. Is this really the most efficient way to get people through? I'm sure that the IT issues behind it that are not being fixed, etc. So there are a lot of areas that really need to be enhanced and to work properly to make it work for in South
2: Africa. That was Chief Executive Officer of Comair Airlines speaking to Nosithle Zuma. South Africa's re-election to the United Nations Human Rights Council is an indication of the world's continued confidence in the country's commitment to human rights, so says South Africa's UN envoy, speaking moments after the country was re-elected for a successive three-year term to the Geneva-based human rights body. Running on a clean slate, four African countries, including Rwanda, Tunisia and Egypt, were elected, while Russia received the fewest number of votes in the East European slate, losing out to both Croatia and Hungary. Bryce Peace reports.
8: This concludes our consideration of sub-item D of agenda item 114. Meeting of agenda. Countries required a simple majority of 97 votes out of 193 to meet the threshold for this election. Listen to General Assembly President Peter Thompson. number of votes obtained by each member state. Tunisia, 189. South Africa, 178. Rwanda, 176. Egypt, 173 a decision welcomed by the country's ambassador, Jerry Machila, under some pressure after the earlier withdrawal from the ICC.
12: This is indication that the world um, have confidence in South Africa, commitment to human rights. But this goes to our, our government, our parliament, civil society, media, NGOs, to all South Africans. It has proved that South Africans collectively, we are dedicated to human rights issues. I think we have been vindicated. 178 countries, just after we know we've been the question of ICC. I think it's a very good news for us, but it's it's our
8: commitment, it's our record. The Asia Pacific Group had a clean slate, ensuring China, Iraq, Japan, and Saudi Arabia's election. Guatemala fell to Brazil and Cuba in the Latin American group, while the United States and the United Kingdom were confirmed on their clean slate for the Western group. Russia will be the other headline from the vote, falling short to Hungary and Croatia in a competitive Eastern European group. Human Rights Watch UN Director Lou Charbonneau had raised concerns, particularly about Russia and Saudi Arabia's candidacy.
13: Ten years after the creation of the Human Rights Council, which is the successor to the failed Human Rights Commission, we've seen some of the same problems crop up. One of the main ones is the fact that some of the worst human rights abusers in the world are running for election and they easily get in. Two of the, the countries that we're most concerned about are Saudi Arabia and Russia. Both of them are involved in atrocity crimes, Saudi Arabia in Yemen with the coalition that it's leading, and Russia in Syria.
8: Ambassador Machila believes, though, that countries with questionable human rights records benefit from a seat on the council.
12: Part of the UN, even coming to the UN's uh, human rights, is to help that particular country to assume certain obligations, and it's better if the countries inside the human rights to assume the complica- obligations. Secondly, is the view that um, nothing is permanent; the society evolves, countries will learn. And gradually they will begin to incorporate human rights, democracy in their own systems. It's a learning thing to be in the UN, human rights system.
8: The term of the 14 newly elected members commences on January 1st through the end of 2019. I'm Sherman Bricebees in New York.
2: A new breed of schools is popping up in the Johannesburg city centre in South Africa. The so-called streetlight schools are an attempt to fill the gap due to a shortage of schools. Those involved in the establishment of these schools say they seek to make education relevant again. One such school has been opened in Jeppies town in central Johannesburg. A senior reporter, Angela Boulwana, Faltas report. <laughs>
4: The streetlight school situated in town is not easy to find. It's nestled in an industrial area surrounded by sounds of drilling machines and men hard at work. But once you find it on the far side of a flat, you open the door to a beautiful cafeteria peppered with green and orange. The children's tiny benches are neatly put, the lights are made out of steel buckets and a huge chalkboard announces what the children are having for lunch. Teacher Cindy takes me around the school.
14: This is our computer lab but uh, we have the laptops in the storeroom, everything there because we don't want to leave them here because it's kind of not safe for us to leave them here because we once had a break and so we think it's, it's safe if we keep them there. So this is also our auditorium. Yeah, we put them in uh, in their uh, grades, and then since I run the after-school program, I have a list here with me. Um, I call the names here, and then they line up. I put them into their uh, activities wherever they're supposed to be on 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 the particular day.
4: Okay, so the, it's after school activities?
14: Yes. Is it sport? Is it it's dream? sports, it's yoga, it's gardening and art really yeah they do yoga yes they do
4: yoga <laughs> the children also have a rooftop garden as part of their after school activities they plant different vegetables they are also responsible for the planting and upkeep of flowers in the school premises they play rugby cricket and soccer at a nearby field mentored by coaches from outside the school there's a library where isi and literacy lessons are taught and some of their artwork is displayed for all to see Teacher Cindy this clear. The school is about making education fun, and one of the ways of doing this is through themes.
14: We're doing uh, people and their cultures. We yeah. we did uh, the necklace. Oh, we, I have pictures in my phone, and we also did small dolls that are wearing traditional attires and all that. So. It's that. So they're enjoying the view. <laughs> they they enjoying. We're trying by all means to keep it like uh, nice for them, and you know, it's it it, it it needs to be something that entertains them. You know, they shouldn't be bored when they are learning and all that.
2: And that report by Angela Bulwana.
15: And I'm Tabisodohoku with an economics update. Hello. South Africa's trade union, AMCU, has described the breakthrough of uh, the wage increase it has secured for its members in all major platinum-producing mines in the country as a significant one. Lonmin, Impala and Anglo Platinum have struck a deal with AMCU related to increases in living allowances and retirement and provident fund. Now, the deal was announced at a mass meeting held at the Royal Bafikian Stadium in Rustenburg in the northwest province on Sunday. Africa's greenest hotel, VERD, at South Africa's Cape Town uh, International Airport, has won uh, the Best Urban Accommodation Award at the 15th Skull International Sustainable Tourism Award held in Monaco. It is a professional organization which promotes global tourism and friendship. Now Megan Flemett was there, and we'll make sure that we have a soundbite for you in the next hour with regards to the details there. According to the International Monetary Fund, Ghana is Africa's most populous prosperous West African country. It is Africa's fastest-growing economy in 2016, as the country's phenomenal growth rate of 8.5% greatly contrasts with the rest of sub-Saharan Africa, which has only seen a 3% growth. But not every Ghanaian is reaping the rewards while the economy powers ahead. Many citizens have been left behind with the World Bank estimating that nearly half of the population still lives in poverty. Nigeria has spent only a little more than half of its budget for 2016 through September, even though the year is a three quarters over. However, the ministry also said it had faced unanticipated revenue shortfalls. It did not give details of the shortfalls. Oil prices have extended declines after non-OPEC producers made no specific commitment to, to join OPEC in limiting oil output levels to a prop up prices. Officials and experts from OPEC countries and non-OPEC nations including Azerbaijan, Brazil, Kazakhstan, Mexico, Omen and Russia met for consultations in Vienna on Saturday and agreed to meet again in November before a scheduled regular OPEC meeting on November the 30th, OPEC and non-OPEC said in a joint statement that Saturday's meeting was a positive development towards reaching a global output limiting deal on November the 30th. You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African renaissance. We are broadcasting live from Johannesburg in Auckland Park. Up next is a sport update with Safiya Lilongwati.
2: So figure, how many? How long has it been since uh, Sundowns has, well, had no break, continuous gaming?
6: No, they haven't been having a break. It's 15 months of playing football throughout. So it's it's been a long time, it's almost two years.
2: Okay, so hopefully yeah. they'll be able to pull up their socks and, and get back into the local soccer space.
6: I think they have to and they have got no, they have no ch- uh, choice, to, they have to adapt to to, to the demands of, of playing football every day
2: well give us an update
6: First up in our sports update this hour, we're starting off with football news. Kenya's Harambe Starlets picked up a 1-0 win over Egypt in their penultimate 2016 Women's Africa Cup of Nations preparatory match at the Kasarani Stadium in Nairobi. The final tournament has been scheduled for the 19th of November to the 3rd of December in the Cameroonian cities of Yaounde and Limbe. Kenya, who will be making their debut at the flagship women's championship, are housed in Group B with holders Nigeria, Ghana, and Mali, whereas Egypt will have to contend with hosts Cameroon, South Africa, and Zimbabwe in Group A. And TP Mazembe of the Democratic Republic of Congo took a big step towards winning the African Confederations Cup after drawing one-all at Maloudia Bejaia of uh, Algeria rather, in the first leg of the final at the weekend. Jonathan Bolingi, one of the four Congolese players in the Mazembe starting lineup, converted a late first-half penalty to give the visitors an away goal and a 1-0 halftime lead in blinder. Bejaya captain Fauziya equalised in the second half from a free kick to keep the Algerians in the final. New Algeria coach Georges Lekens from Belgium was among a large, noisy crowd in the 37,000-capacity stadium as the dominated early territory and possession. And in local football, newly crowned African champions Mamelodi Sundowns were shocked at home by Cape Town City, losing 2-1 in an Absa Premiership match played at the Loftus Stadium in Pretoria on Sunday two goals from captain Lebohang Manyama in the 21st and the 82nd minute stole all the maximum points Eric Tingler's team. Tawantete scored a consolation goal from the host in the 58th minute. Coach Peter Musimani credited the Cape team for great performance.
13: Today's game was not coming. Eh? We, we just could not um, get behind our defense. We just played in front of them and they organized it very well and uh, we didn't even get the second ball no? any ball that falls in the midfield we didn't do well but they deserved, they deserved a win they needed it more than us they were more hungry than us and um, obviously they can only score from a break and that's what they did and we knew that uh, that's not an excuse when you play home and uh, you, are, you are one game behind you change the game and you, you still think you can win it you still push on and we uh, got a nice very good counter-attack but we knew, we knew about it but it doesn't matter when uh, when you want to go w- score and want to win. But we were not up to it. Yeah? We we just lethargic and we just didn't look like uh, scoring. Never mind winning.
6: And in athletics, South Africa's Stephen Mukoka and Rosa Dereje of Ethiopia had a special outing in China, where they won their respective titles in the Shanghai Marathon. Our correspondent Gesho Mnyati reports.
16: Stephen Mokoka won the Shanghai Marathon for the third time after successive wins in 2011 and 2012. He powered to the front in the last 7km and ran solo to win in 2 hours, 10 minutes, 18 seconds which was outside his career best of below 2 hours, 8 minutes. Kenyan Asbel Kipsang, the quickest of all runners on the start list, was outpaced by Mokoka for second position followed by Abdi Fufa of Ethiopia. The South African has competed six times in a row in the Chinese Marathon event. Ethiopia's Rosa dereja shook off a late challenge from Kenya's Margaret Agai to win the women's race in 2 hours 31 minutes 16 seconds. Diragia had become too confident and unaware the Kenyan was fast closing the gap towards the finishing line. Another Ethiopian, Yude Ayeru, a 10000 meters World Championship bronze medalist in 2009, strode home in a creditable third position. Geshwam Miati, Channel Africa Sports, London.
6: Finally with golf news, Hideki Matsuyama has won the HSBC Champions in Shanghai for his first World Golf Championship victory. A 24-year-old from Japan closed with a 66 for 23 under par and a hugely impressive seven-strokes win.
8: Nick Dyer reports. It's a first win at this level from a player from Asia, fittingly at the event dubbed Asia's Major. He's been in tremendous form of late, winning the Japan Open, finishing second in Malaysia and firing 29 birdies en route to success here in Shershan. The Open champion Henrik Stenson has finished in style to share second on a distant 16 under par with Daniel Berger. A closing 66 sees Rory McIlroy tied fourth with Bill Haas, but nobody was able to dent the dominance of a man who's now racked up 10 professional victories. Matsuyama climbed into the world's top 10 at the start of the week. He'll now rise to around sixth position. That's the Sport News this hour.
6: Africa rise and shine. Africa soap. Africa amuka na umai.
2: Recapping our top stories on Africa rise and shine today, a spat between South Africa and Botswana over the ICC may be brewing. Nearly 400,000 children in northeastern Nigeria face starvation and a new breed of schools popping up in Johannesburg City Centre in South Africa. That wraps up Africa Ra's and Shan today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Tracy Bumga, technical producer Sifin and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at today, or tweet us at Ra's Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Now taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Afrotraction with the track titled "Angieke."